0: Josh Pies is a veteran actor known for roles in Law & Order SBU, Touchy Feely, Netflix's Maniac, and many other notable projects. Originally from New York City, Pies studied acting and directing at Syracuse University. He has worked extensively in film, television, and theater. After discovering his passion for teaching, he founded Committed Impulse, where he draws upon a wealth of experience to teach a modern method of acting based in truth and impulse. You can see Pies in Showtime's Ray Donovan in HBO's Mrs. Fletcher, as well as in recent films Motherless Brooklyn and Joker.
1: Josh Price, welcome to The Creative Process. Uh, oh,
2: my pleasure.
1: So it's it's so interesting, as I, I look at your background, and I'm interested in what drew you to acting, because the path, you know, might looking at your parents and where you grew up in alphabet city one might not necessarily think actor so what what attracted you to that
2: well first off you know i i grew up in a very bohemian uh environment and alphabet city when i was growing up there one aspect of it it was a very dangerous neighborhood um i mean it was filled with heroin Basically, when I was a kid, heroin and acid were the two big um, drugs uh, of the day. And, um, you know, and with that, there was a lot of violence and and danger and mugging. You know, it was a regular occurrence that as I would come out of my stoop as a, you know, as a kid, there'd be somebody OD'd uh, on the stoop. And it's like what everybody did. You know, from when I was like nine years old, like you just kind of pick that person up, you know, slap them in the face a couple of times, and just make them walk up and down the street, uh, because just to keep them somewhat alert. And it wasn't like heroic; it was just like that's what everybody did. Like it wasn't like it. It was. It was just what it, it was. Just what everyone did. And this, so, amidst that, there was also this incredible sense of. Uh, community and creativity and if you were part of the neighborhood you were mostly protected but anybody coming in from the outside um, was putting their life in their hands Mm -hmm. and amidst that there was also a very um, creative uh, there was an incredible amount of creativity happening Um, artists could move their um, and that's the reason uh, my mom moved there. My she parents was, were divorced. I'll tell you about my dad. She was yeah. a painter and a poet.
3: Right.
2: And so she could have, you know, that was the cheapest place um, to live to get a, you know, a nice sized apartment.
3: Yeah. And
2: in our apartment, it evolved to, um, we started having these shows where it was, a lot of people would refer to it as performance art, but just maybe every other Saturday night, about 40, uh, around 40 people would gather in our living room and we would do these performances. And basically anybody could get up and do some kind of a performance. And, um, you know, I remember there was one guy, he was this, he was a taxi driver, this guy, Billy, and he would stop in, uh, he'd park his cab outside and he would, he would stop in and he would do, uh, like a scene from waiting for Godot. And he would do like both characters, um, you know, and then he'd, he'd get back in his cab and, you know, and take off. And, and some of it was very experimental and I was very, you know, very much a part of that, um, doing, you know, you know, Acting in these little um, scenes that we would create, um, you know, and and it was a completely um, non-judgmental environment where anybody could just get up and and create. And at that point, I I didn't even think about acting as uh, you know as a job or as a, as a career. It was just like this is you know, this is what we do on, on Saturday nights, and,
1: um... Well, it seems like very good grounding, on the other hand, because, and also that you're um, not thinking of it as a profession, you're just enjoying yourself, and it seems to, that's like, I think, like, one of the, like, first rules for any art, you know?
2: A hundred percent. A hundred percent. Yeah, I mean, it couldn't be a better, um, it really couldn't be a better foundation. Right. Um... And then, you know, on my father, my father was uh, a theoretical – he was a Holocaust survivor. He he was in – he was hiding throughout um, the war, like, very near Anne Frank and was, like, moving from attic to attic and um, was captured at the end of the war. Um, But while he was in hiding, he was the last Jew to get a Ph.D. in physics in Amsterdam before um, all the – everything was shut down you know all the educational uh facilities were were shut down by the nazis and while he was in hiding he like how he survived was by doing physics and after the war he he went and worked with niels bohr who was basically the father of the atom um and and then uh Robert Oppenheimer invited him to the Institute for Advanced Studies in Princeton, um, and and there he worked on and off with Einstein for um, for about eleven years. And the question?
1: Oh no, I was just I I, know I don't like to stop in your flow, but it just seems and you've absor- absorbed some of his approach to um, looking at matter and, you know, what we're composed of in your, in your teaching um, seminars?
2: A hundred percent, a hundred percent. I mean, I can, just a little story about, you know, how, what my dad, my dad's influence uh, on me as an actor and, you know, eventually, you know, the teaching that I've been doing for decades... Um, committed impulse. Yes. I mean, just a little story is like when I was, I don't know, probably like six or seven. Um, I asked my dad. I was, you know, I knew what like my friend, other friends' dads did, and you know, it was very. They were either like drug dealers or bus drivers or school teachers. Not um, not theoretical. Not theoretical. Yeah, not theoretical physicists and. And my dad, you know, would write on these, you know, floor-to-ceiling blackboards, these enormous calculations and, um, you know, with these figures that I had no idea what they were. Um, and so one day I was like, you know, what, you know, I was like, I'm going to get to the bottom of this. And I was like, what do you do? I want to know what you do. And and I was sitting next to a little table and he said, you see this table? I was like, yeah. And he, he said, you see your knee? I said, yeah. And he said, the smallest part of that table and the smallest part of your knee are the same thing, it's atoms and he said that's what I am exploring you know the building blocks of the universe you know and then he (laughs) picked his bag and head out the door and I was like whoa Mm
3: -hmm.
2: Um, but then cut to you know I went to acting school and I started auditioning in New York and I was so filled with nerves and Fear and anxiety that I just couldn't like I would work on what I was gonna do at home and then I would go into the audition and I was just wrapped with um so much you know so much of those emotions and sensations that I couldn't do a good job and yeah. at one point, I remembered this story that I just told you about the atoms that my body was atoms, and as soon as I and i started experimenting actually feeling what i was feeling on an energetic level as opposed to judging you know fear you know we've been so enculturated to have this belief that fear or anxiety for example or nervousness are bad things to feel and so if we hold them as bad things to feel that when they occur we tend to either try to suppress ourselves, um, which leads us into a mental drama. Um, you know, or we go on some autopilot way of operating, which is not good for creating. So I started just experimenting, feeling that, you know, for example, if I was nervous, like just to feel the physical vibration, almost like, what are the atoms doing? and and that just opened everything up. To me because then it it all became creative fuel as opposed to something good or bad that I was feeling. And, and it, yeah,
1: no, it seems it seems sorry. No, it seems to be such a a beautiful insight as well because as I think of, you know, drama, theater, or conflict is you know you like your building tool. so you don't want to suppress that because it's like amplified. So it seems it's so it's such a wonderful insight. That it's all this kind of choreography, and you need the good and the bad, and you need the villains in order to have redemptive roles and and all of this. And it's interesting. And and did you find that in your training, um, you were missing something that you know that that wasn't given to you in your? And is that why you created committed impulse, or or how did that come about?
2: Well, yeah, I mean, my training was very. Uh, you know, when I went to college, it was very Stanislavski based, right. and it was very much about like drawing on events in your past and aligning them with the scene that you were playing now, and like you know, drawing on these events in your life and trying to find alignment within the scene. And it right. seemed very logical, hmm. but it wasn't interesting. It wasn't you know, when I watched people do it, it was like, yeah, okay. You know, it makes sense for the scene and maybe they had some real emotion. Mm -hmm. Um, but it wasn't, it wasn't, um, it, for me as an actor, it, uh, it was, it separated me from the moment because I was dredging things up to try to align them with what was happening.
1: You were thinking yeah. too much. It was making you think. I was thinking yeah. too much.
2: Yeah, it was very, you know, it was. It made so much sense, mm. but it was very heady. Yeah. And I had one teacher that had just come back from Poland who had worked with this guy, Jerzy Grotowski, and she introduced that work to me, and all of a sudden, like, I felt for the first time what it was like to be out of my head and fully in my body and fully present and fully open to the energetic impulses in my body.
3: Right. And
2: then when I went into scene work, it was like everything was just there. Like I didn't have to I didn't have to leave um I didn't have to leave what was at current to do the work. Yeah. And you know, I think in this era that we're in, mm-hmm. people are hungry for something truthful and immediate and and i think people are constantly scanning for truth (laughs) you know i mean you just turn on cnn and it's like is this true is this not true and and i think that's in the culture that people want or they need truth it's like they're drawn to something truthful and and that's you know In terms of for actors it's like it's the truth of what you're experiencing in that moment as you connect to your immediate environment um and working you know with the text that it's so immediate and spontaneous and truthful that that's it's just you know that's what people want to see you know? that's what and i think they, they want to them. do
1: in life but they don't sometimes they can't get yeah yeah they 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 have to hold it back just to hold their, themselves together that i mean i think it's a really i think the actors or the whole performing arts Every you know everyone the whole team um you know really you know we say what is the importance of the arts and sometimes now you see funding is going down for it in, you know but it, it it really performs a, a really a healing role in society. I think you know artists are healers and and they, or they can be.
2: Uh, absolutely, mm-hmm. yeah.
1: But and I like so, yeah. You
2: know, go, ahead, go ahead. No, I
1: like the way you explain that because it's true. I, when you said that the people are hungry for truth, and that when the process becomes, I mean, right now we're discussing process because you know it's helpful for students and things. But when when you're in the moment of art, you don't want it to be so explanatory because then it seems false. It's like too logical, complete sentences. You know, it's like it's not it's not like the impulse is is gone. It's more thought out, you know, so it's.
2: uh, Yeah. And, you know, I think also in this era where people are addicted to, you know, looking at small, you know, at screens. Yeah. uh, You know, that they carry around in their pocket like it and if you look at somebody looking at their screen, it's like they've left their body. Like, yeah. there's no inner... And, and so I think in this time, you know, more than ever, mm-hmm. people need to witness people that are creating from their truth and their bodies and their soul and their full being because um it's just a necessary balancer to um you know to being completely you know there's the illusion of connection and and certainly there is a level of connection that you can talk with somebody you know on the other side of the planet but at the same time there's a disconnection from human to human interaction yeah and it's everything is that, edited Everything's edited, and it's also you know it's necessary for the shifts that need to happen in our, on our planet for people to have a connection to, to their bodies and to other people on, mm-hmm. a, on a kinesthetic level, mm-hmm. because otherwise we just escape and we become very, you know, in a sense, manipulatable. As we escape into these screens and disconnect from our intuition, our you know everything creative, and so more than ever, you know, I would say any any performer or anybody that relates to groups of people, you know, this connection to their impulses and their truth, mm-hmm. you know, and maybe it's sometimes a messy truth is. Yeah it's highly life-affirming and really an important um element that um you know that our world is hungry for
1: i think that uh gosh there's so many questions i I want to ask you about uh, um, your process. Uh, <laughs> I do. Well, I wonder, I, I don't want to leave behind, you know, your upbringing because I know you did a documentary, but I also want to, you know, stay with this of about, you know, acting to, techniques and and your approach to comedy. And But I'm thinking now about a film uh, you made a few years ago, Touchy Feely, and it seems to me that it relates as well to this this notion of uh, connection and, you know, healing through art, through touch and uh, should you discuss your approach to that? That was um, um, Ellen Page. Was it just just discuss the film a little bit, if you could, in relation to it? Yeah, that.
2: Um, I, I mean, I love that film. Um, I mean, uh, the, just the evolution of it was. Um, I was at. Um, I I had. I was in this Nicole Hollop Center movie called Please Give yes. that was screening premiering at. Um, the Tribeca Film Festival. Right. And You're working
1: with her uh, on a few, you've worked with her on a few projects now.
2: Yeah, yeah. And I have a project, two projects that I'm working with her coming up, mm-hmm. but I'll, I'll tell you about those in a minute. But, so basically, um, I left, you know, I was walking out of the theater and this woman came up to me and she was like, I'm such a fan of your work, and I was like, very flattered you know, and we just ended up walking the same direction for a few blocks, and I was like, what do you do? And she said, oh, I'm, I'm a filmmaker, and she said, I'm Lynn Shelton, and I was like, oh my god, I'm such, and she directed Touchy Feely, and I had just seen this movie Hump Day that she had done like literally a week or two before, and I was like, I am such a fan of your work, and we went and just hung out with, there was a little cast gathering, and she came, and we just talked and talked and talked and said like let's make something together and we just started um brainstorming I said you know let's just because she was left for Seattle and I said let's just get on Skype and just brainstorm and shoot ideas around and see you know see what evolves and out of those discussions and out of you know ideas that she was had been wanting to uncover um you know, she, you know, she crafted, um, you know, touchy-feely. And then one day, you know, she called me and she said, i got it. And she kind of spoke the whole film out to me. Mm-hmm. And we then kind of brainstormed a little more. Um, and so that was the genesis of it. Um, and basically, you know, played somebody that was very shut down in their life. And it's really a story of this this guy uh, that I played. you know he's a dentist, and he goes on this journey of self-discovery. And you know how I approached it and how I approach practically everything is physically. Mm-hmm. and
1: your body uh, is so different. it's very different from this f- freer person you are I, as a teacher, yeah,
2: yeah. And so you know it—it it was you know—and I developed these whole set of tools called the Inner Atomics. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we're going all over the place, but um, so basically, you know, with that, basically the first scene that we shot was my character going into this club, into this kind of uh this dance club and it Uh, was like the last place this guy would ever go Mm -hmm. and you know i talked with lynn and this was like the very first day and i i was very open to how this character was going to evolve uh and unfold i just was i knew it would come and it was basically the first shot was just me walking down this long hallway to the club and it was like the most terrifying place for this guy um, where there were people just dancing and, you know, free, and this guy was not free at all. And just in that walk, as we started shooting, I found the physicality of the character. And just basically, like, all his energy is compressed inward,
3: yeah. and
2: you know, and I I gripped my toes like throughout, the, you know, the first half of the movie. Mm. Like, I just kept gripping my toes and had my energy compressed into my center and very kind of armored and protected
3: mm-hmm. and
2: that just basically how I work is to make physical choice. like our, our, our imagination is in our body yeah. and by making physical choices that trigger your imagination then it opens you up to be spontaneous and you don't have to plan what you're going to do and so mm-hmm. often actors get caught in the trap of how am I going to say this line? How am I going to say that line? But mm-hmm. if you're fully in your body and you've made choices that stimulate your imagination, then you can just be, you, you bring your being into that moment and everything unfolds perfectly. Yes. And so just out of that, finding that contracted body, um, you know, was, it opened that character up um, and a- allowed me to be spontaneous within a contracted body. If that makes any sense. It does. It looked and to me,
1: then, your like your spine was compressed. <laughs> when I was watching. Yeah. And just I felt. I felt so uncomfortable for you. You know. I thought, God, someone yeah. needs to stretch this guy. <laughs> And um, totally. yeah, um, so with again like the opposite from what I know, and I know we have like mutual friends or whatever. But what I've heard, and that you have so much energy, it just seemed like uh, uh, it was just there were the really hilarious scenes, like when you get onto the uh, you climb onto the reiki table, reiki, reiki table, and in yes. this thing, just so Without awkward. Yes. yes, Yeah. And it's just like
2: yeah, just the most awkward guy ever.
1: Yeah, <laughs> and and do you find comedy, I I shouldn't say easy, but, you know, it it just seems natural to you. I I just find things that you do funny.
2: Yeah, I mean, you know, I, um, you know, for better or worse, Mm -hmm. I I look at everything as like what's as comedy. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And, you know, I was on I was on Law and Order for, you know, for years. Um and even that, like, even though it's not it's like a certain kind of comedy or it's
3: yeah. it's almost like
2: I, I I look at like what does the character what how is the character what like what doesn't the character see about themselves? Like what do they not know about how they're living in the world?
3: Mm-hmm. And
2: that to me is very funny, you know, and, and very real. Like yeah. it's it's w- like what is their blind spot, and how does that blind spot cause them to relate to other people in the world, and um, and that's just so interesting and fun um, for me, and and I think also you know comedy is to me you know what's interesting, what I'm interested in playing with, and what I'm what I love to see is you know it's it's basically and this is not a new idea but it's just it's almost like so serious it's like taking something so serious that is maybe kind of ridiculous but if that character plays it is so serious about it it's it's just ridiculous
3: yeah.
1: I think to to me sometimes I don't think it works the reverse way but to me like serious acting when it's done like yeah so like double double speed not double speed but like um no when it's it's like bad serious acting becomes hilarious you know <laughs> they, they they believe it even worse than the, a, a tragedy you know <laughs> but I don't think it works the same way I don't think that bad comic acting becomes good. Serious I know serious drama I don't think it works the same way, but um,
2: yeah, right,
1: yeah, but yeah, just the the this over exaggerated and uh, serious acting becomes so funny um yeah, but a lot of people find painful, it very difficult painful to watch yeah, a lot of people find it difficult, and I think it's that maybe that's physicality or i I wondered if it was something that you came to over time. Because you find that with like really serious actors who obviously can do serious acting too, but with really serious actors sometimes they find the comedy really hard. And uh I don't know I don't know how I how mean, you get I just to that. The, I, yeah, that it's effortless.
2: I, you know, I just see um I can't help but reading something mm-hmm. and being the humor in it. Yeah. Um e- even the most serious thing. Um you know, it's just, it's, I don't know. It's just, um, it's just how my brain works. Like I'm just so, um, I'm just so entertained by people and, um, and, and life and, uh, and I don't know. I just, I, I, it's not like I'm, I'm, you know, it's not like it's a master plan. I just, um, I just, See what's funny in things. I mean, I—it's like that's how I um, kind of navigate the world, I guess. You know, it's not—it's not, mm-hmm. it, not like a plan, um, but I just—you know—even like early on in, you know, in when I was, you know, I—I I probably did like 20, 25 episodes of Law and Order, like yeah. early in the the original, and I I played this medical examiner. Mm. And I just play. I just played with the idea that he was, and this wasn't in the script, but it just yeah. activated me that he thought that he could be a better detective than the detectives, mm. and that he resented that they were like further up in the hierarchy of, um, you know, a, being a, you know, uncovering a crime. So just having that. You know, and Law and Order is not like a comedy. Um, you know, there's nothing much but funny. But some of my stuff <laughs> yeah, but it could be. I mean, I and I and just playing with this guy, you know, he was as he was revealing this these super technical aspects of, you know, a a dead body, you know, just playing also with that he can't stand these guys and thinks that he should be a detective. Like just having that as an going around in the underground of the character, Mm
3: -hmm. it just,
2: um, you know, made it more than just a guy who's just, you know, delivering uh, the information. And so I just try to find, it's basically, you know, try to find ways to turn myself on creatively so that I don't have to think, so that Mm -hmm. I don't have to plan how something's going to unfold, you know, Mm -hmm. especially... With those kind of scenes where it's so technical, mm. um, just having that little bit of, you know, some might call, it, you know, it's almost like a secret. Um, mm. It just opens. You know, the key thing I think for any artist is how can you in- trigger yourself to be spontaneous, to be present, to be so that you're not. Creating from your thoughts. You're creating from your body and your impulses and something deeper than just because nobody's interested in, at least in the performing arts, and we can talk about this, but nobody's interested in your great ideas. They want your impulses and your truth. And not to say that your ideas can't travel through that, but any performance that's Comes from the head. It puts. It doesn't. It in a sense kills the ritual of a performance. And really, the I see the ritual of a performance is to stir up the imagination of the audience, as opposed to telling the the audience this is what's happening with this character. Even if you do it in a really naturalistic way. Then the audience goes like, oh, okay. Oh, that's what's going on with them. As opposed to offering your truth as you're creating, then the audience's imagination starts firing.
1: Yeah, they're working for you.
2: Yes. And, and, And that's, you know, the ritual has to be to get their imagination firing. And how you do that is by offering your truth as opposed to telling them even if it's done very naturalistically this is what's going on like let them figure it out and they always will
1: yeah and then there's the other things that build on it like soundtracks and things like that so it does you don't need to like underline it three times <laughs> like all exactly. all these in- all, all these really intelligent people i mean i'm just thinking of another um you know you know recent recording world like ray donovan i i interviewed david hollander and he's talking about how he simplifies his scripts oh, i shouldn't say simplifies it but you know takes out so much to leave that space for the actor and as you say, by extension, space for the imagination of the the viewer, and I and for me, yeah. I think the theater is the voyeuristic element that that we lo- we feel like we are discovering it. So. Not, yeah. not to make it look like you're thinking it so much. Um, I really love, I'm, I'm a fan of your recurring role, Stu, in, uh, in Ray Donovan. Too. The, the 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 last one, I don't mean to give things away if, if people haven't seen, but it's just, he's a crazy. <laughs> that you could reimagine Ray Donovan talking about something being comedy when I see your role, um, you know, spicing it up like that um it's it's really great and i i i I want i want i I should i want more of your scenes so i don't know what's what's happening in the next few uh episodes but i would like
2: to david tell david hollander that i will
1: (laughs) but um yeah so i really and i and i understand that that must be um you know, a lot of, you're talking about, you know, creating a kind of subtext or a secret for yourself in different roles, you know, t- talking about uh, uh, larger roles, main characters or, um, you know, character parts. And I think about the, the pressure that you must have for, you know, when it's a shorter role, um, you know, all that believability that you have to compress in instead of you know allowing it to unravel slowly and, and depend on so many other things to you know convince the audience and I um yeah, I think that the physical training yeah, I mean, really yeah helps with that,
2: yeah. I mean, uh, you know, I started out doing you know so many you know small guest roles on yeah. TV shows, mm-hmm. and you know, you know, if I had you know, like a two-page scene, let's say, and that Mm -hmm. was my entire character on an episode of something. It's, you know, I had to bring in... It's almost more work because exactly what you said, like, you know, I wanted to bring in a full three-dimensional being Mm -hmm. that felt like he lived outside of just, you know, those four minutes uh, where you see him, uh, you know, in in an episode or in a, you know, in a movie. Um, And so it was, it was really awesome training in a way to start out that way. Um, Because, you know, it just, and, and it's really key, you know, to find the body, the physical Mm. body, because that communicates so much to an audience. And people are constantly scanning other people's bodies for information. And it's, yeah. it's mostly done unconsciously. Like if you look across, you know, if you're at a party and you see someone across the room, you immediately know so much about that person. And it's because you have, it's a survival mechanism to scan other people's bodies um, to assess in your nervous system if you're safe. Um, but then it goes beyond that that you can, there's so much information being communicated just in somebody standing still. And so, you know, that's, um, that's been a real interesting, um, uh, just, just that that's part of human nature
3: mm. and to
2: bring that into the work is, you know, is really exciting. And that's why it's so important to, stay connected to your body and to use your body to how people operate into the world and how people perceive the world, you yes. can tell, you can understand that by looking at their body. And I think,
1: yeah. I, but I do feel like actors, I mean, certain professions, even, even sh- soldiers, say, you know, certain professions have a, an emphasis on that kind of acquisition of signal, you know. Uh, you know, you know, quick, quick responses um, characterizing. But I think a lot of us, as you say, are losing touch with that, and that's why, you know, uh, taking classes in uh, um, the committed impulse or you know reconnecting with that is so important because I part of it. What you talk about the screens that we're always looking at is, in a way, I don't know. We're living in this age of information technology, but it's also reducing things all the time to like. You know, on and off. Or, you know, it's just numbers, that kind of thing. That um, absolutely the, the human element. And, and I, I, I like to think that I have strong instincts, but sometimes I don't because I, I don't know. Sometimes like sort of reading a lot makes you more, as you said, in your head. Um, well,
2: there's you know, not much in our culture mm-hmm. that encourages us to stay connected to our bodies. Yeah. You know, it's just not, um, and, you know, even if you look at people in a gym, mm-hmm. like so often they're using their bodies, um, but you can tell that their minds are elsewhere or they're watching television. And, um, and what that does, it signals to the entire nervous system to, to you're, you're training yourself to be disconnected and so in a sense like your body is the tool to bring you into the present moment not your mind Mm -hmm. and also that you know that's why so many you know with my classes it started out just being after training and it continues to be after training but now you know so many entrepreneurs and artists and teachers and lawyers and a lot of doctors um take my class exactly for the reason that you just said because the, you know they know that they need to connect and um and I also you know train people to increase their tolerance for their full spectrum of body sensations and basically what that is is You know, we've been so enculturated in a Freudian society to have this notion that, you know, as I was saying earlier, that there's good sensations and bad sensations. And, you know, we've we've been trained deeply in that belief system. And so what happens is that when you feel something that you've associated as bad, that when that happens, it's, you're going to do everything you can to disconnect from your body uh, and that's what causes the majority of problems for people and yeah health problems train too people, yeah. oh absolutely and part of what I train people is no matter what you're feeling um, to actually stay if you stay connected to the actual sensations without going into a mental drama then all that energy, all those vibrations, all that atomic movement is creative fuel. And if there is nothing bad, you know, I'm not talking about pain, but if you can increase your tolerance for every way that your body vibrates, which is another way of saying every emotion that you feel, like then you're creatively invincible. Like then you can be unstoppable. And typically, what happens is everybody's good until they feel X, Y, or Z. And then when that sensation happens, they go into their head, they start a mental drama, they disconnect from their body, they reduce their breathing, all to get rid of a dreaded sensation. And if you if you can hang out with and in a sense party with all the sensations that are natural to you, because they're all built into your DNA like then then everything opens up and you don't have to walk around trying to avoid feeling something or constantly monitor yourself to try to not feel something.
1: I was speaking to a, a director of a, a dance company and we were talking about this thing that I think that naturally children or animals, but you know children, we are unaware of our bodies. We're dancing all the time, you know, up until a certain age, you know, and then he was saying, "Oh, maybe around ten or twelve, we start to become self-conscious in a way. But up till then, like we're mostly very graceful and almost, in a way, like animals are. But then we start to, you know, we start to cover up in the way we dress, and when they we're told that we can't, you know, kids that you'll see them running around parks naked yeah. and well, and I, all I that." I would
2: phrase it that that were I would phrase it that we're completely connected to our bodies yeah. and not as connected to our minds. Yeah. And once our minds and our uh, thoughts about ourselves become the primary thing that we listen to mm-hmm. then everything starts shutting down
1: Yeah, so it's it's strange. I mean, I think I feel like the you know in different cultures um, Sometimes the word for mind and, and feelings or body is is um, it's more connected Like or they'll say, you know what I I th- what I think about something and they'll point to their their chest or something or their stomach or you know and so it's interesting yeah. how some cultures are more, or like in Latin America, like um, like I work with students and they're saying, oh, well, we, we all study dancing all through and until like high school. We're all dancing all the time, you know? And I thought, isn't right. that lovely, you know? Um, yeah. As we're cutting these things out of our educational system because we're deciding, oh, we don't need music, we don't need, you know, physical education, you know, we just need to train, you know, people in STEM, for instance, which is important. But, you know, uh, but I I do think we need these things. So it's, it's, um, it's
2: wonderful. We need them because they open, because our imagination is in our body. And, Mm -hmm. and, and by nurturing the whole energetic patterning and system of our bodies, it opens our imagination and will allow for more innovation and inspiring ideas like in all areas not just the arts like in you know in medicine in in everything and we think that the way to come up with new ideas is solely through the mind mm-hmm. and the more connected you are to your body the more connected you are to really, what you, whatever it is that you have to offer the world, and it opens the more connected you are to your body, the more connected you are, you know, to your imagination and your creativity and your insights. Yeah. So I agree. I agree wholeheartedly.
0: I'm Emma Ryan, a fourth-year undergraduate at the University of California at Berkeley. I am an architecture major, which has provided me a tremendous education in creative thinking, but I aspire to be a screenwriter. I was especially compelled by Josh Pies's description of the technique taught at Committed Impulse, and its emphasis on a performer's truth. This technique, Pies argues, is wholly modern. At first, this argument surprised me, because what's novel about truth in acting? Truth wasn't a foreign concept to classic Hollywood stars like Cary Grant or Ingrid Bergman, or even to Buster Keaton working in the silent film era. But upon further listening, I realized that the modernity inherent in Pais' work doesn't lie in the truth itself, but rather in how he accesses that truth. Every pedagogical system is stymied by some degree of outdated practice, and in the world of performing, it's methods like Stanislavski's, which instruct actors to rely on emotional memory. But in a day and age where there are innumerable distractions vying for an audience's attention, an actor can't afford to be anything but present. Dutiful presence is the modern truth, one born out of instinct and impulse. But it doesn't stop at performing. Committed impulse doesn't just teach actors, they also teach anyone interested in creating from truth. I have a number of creative passions, from writing and architecture to music and painting. Listening to Josh Pies, I have been inspired to analyze how each of these passions have traditionally been practiced and to consider if those traditions need to be updated as i work i will ask myself how can i rely on my energetic impulses to find truth in my art whatever form it may take
1: when it's very interesting as we look at the the natural world just in general i think you know you mentioned that your father worked with einstein and there there are you know quite famous stories now how he's had ideas just by you know taking the tram every day to work and just these observations of of being in movement and being in the natural world exactly it's coming out through that it's a kind of physical activity in fact that sparked the, his imagination. Um, I'd yeah. like to talk a bit more because you did a document you you made a documentary of Seventh uh, yeah. uh, Street um, and so. Right i was wondering that must be a great beyond this kind of salon evenings that you did in, in your apartment but there must have been great all those character studies that you had a, around you as as i uh over there's some characters that you is, is, did, did that you know intrigue you about did you start observing people then or just what were some of the things the, the memories i don't know if you would like to discuss them
2: yeah oh uh, yeah totally i mean well just in terms of the characters, Mm -hmm. um, you know, as the the East Village was so rich with these types of New Yorkers that were, that are really no longer around or at Mm -hmm. least they're not in New York anymore, but just like, just wild like creative, you know, some of them crazy um, but just passionate about whatever it is that they were passionate about and everything was just out in the open, you know, the good and the bad, the good, the bad, and the ugly, you know, and I, the reason I started making that movie and I shot it over a 10-year period was I sensed that these amazing people that I grew up with, um, you know, and like some of them were con artists, some some of them were you know there was this guy manny who was this like the millionaire of the block and just owned all this property and had like piles of money and you know in suitcases and um and he was like this total gangster um but he would walk around like a bum like he yeah. looked like um you know and just uh just amazing characters and i and i knew that um I could sense that the East Village was going to it was starting to shift it was like Mm -hmm. early on um, uh, you you know it was the beginning of gentrification in that area and I I just intuitively felt like these people these characters um, were never going to if I didn't document these characters which are such a part of New York um, if I didn't capture them they would vanish forever and so I just started I just you know started filming them and interviewing them and hanging out with a lot of them people that I grew up with and um, and I, I just I didn't really know what I was doing I just it was just out of the sense that if I don't capture this it's gonna to be gone forever and um, at about Halfway through filming, and I would just go out on the street with this tiny crew. About um, halfway through the filming of that, the biggest drug lord in the whole East Coast—a um, guy who had an operation out of a laundromat um, in, on Seventh between B and C—he, um, as I was walking home one night, he—he's, I noticed he was walking ahead of me. And then when there was nobody around, he turned around and he said, you know, I respect you. Um, And I I was in Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. I was Mm -hmm. Raphael in the Mm -hmm. original movie. And so, you know, people knew me, you know, like that was like a big thing in the neighborhood. Mm -hmm. Um, And he was like, I respect you, but if you keep filming, um, you know, I can't be responsible for what's going to happen to you. You know, and he was Uh, basically threatening my life uh, because he thought that I was trying to uncover his operation um, which I wasn't but there was so many people there was so much uh, connection between so many drug dealers and the police and everybody was in everybody's back pocket um, and there was so much corruption um, and, and so he thought you know, that what I was doing was to basically put him away. Like that's what somehow he got that in his head. So he, he, you know, he basically said, I'm going to kill you if you keep filming. And, Mm -hmm. um, and I went home and I, you know, videotaped myself. I said, this just happens. You know, in case he did kill me, there'd be some record of it. And that's actually in the documentary. That, that clip um, but so I stopped filming because my son was just born and I stopped filming for several years and uh, Giuliani it, um, what, what, it doesn't even seem like it was the same Giuliani it wasn't the same Giuliani but yeah. he, he like swept out you know he put this guy away um, and the neighborhood kind of shifted Almost overnight, and um, and so I was able to document this shift over this ten-year period of filming. I, you know, didn't intend to film over ten years, but I, you know, this guy, this drug dealer, caused me to stop filming for a while, and then after he was put away, I carefully started filming again and ended up documenting, you know, this amazing transition in this neighborhood, and also the impact on these you know old school New Yorkers that could now no longer live in their neighborhood because the rents went so high um, and so it you know it's a really impactful story of uh, you know on one level the neighborhood became became safer but on another level all the character went away and you know and that's in a sense how I you know having spent my whole life, you know, as a new yorker um you know that's the way new york is is moving into much more the character is going away, and it's becoming much more generic and safe yeah um, and you know certainly the safety is a good thing, but at what cost you know that's really the question that's the question that the film raises,
1: sure, it's um, now become part of the mythology and the the marketing and and all these things that um yeah i I, I don't know the neighbor I was there a little bit in the, in the early nineties. I wonder I just had a conversation with Frederick Tutin. Do you know him? He lives there now, yeah. but Frederick Tutin, he's also a writer but um but I thought you might know him from the Hamptons, but uh he's just come out with a memoir my young life, but he talks about Queens but now he he lives near like, just on Tompkins Park. and uh, uh, uh-huh. the, Anyway, I just thought you might know him because of mutual friends. Um, but, no, yeah, and I'm no. just thinking about, he, he's also writing about neighborhoods that have vanished and, uh, you know, before all the gentrification. I mean, it's good and it's bad, no. but it's... Yeah, um,
2: it's, it's very complicated.
1: But it must have been amazing, as I think, uh, amazing training for any kind of artist, but particularly for an actor, because I don't, um, as you say, you're surrounded by people, you know, con men and great characters. I mean, these are all, they're all actors, really, you know? Uh,
2: yeah. I mean, it, it couldn't be, it it couldn't be, you know, it couldn't be more perfect, that, yeah. you know? And, and yeah, and it's
1: survival, not. so you have to act to survive, just to, you know, act tough or act, you know, strong so or true. whatever. <laughs> um,
2: yeah. Right. No, I had to... You know, I used to get mugged um, regularly. Like, right. it was just like, okay, now I'm getting mugged again.
3: Okay. And
2: I started doing martial arts when I was 13. And we would, like, we would spar in, uh, you know, in dark rooms, you know, right. because the teacher wanted us to be able to feel the energy of the other people. Mm-hmm. And once I started doing that training, um, nobody ever bothered me. Um, but I did learn how to you know it's in a way it's it all makes sense, you know, in terms of a big picture in terms of committed impulse, but I had to learn how to be in my body so mm-hmm. that people and have awareness like a 360 degree awareness around me um, and that somehow must have signaled to people like, you know, even though I was this little kid, like don't mess with him uh, because nobody messed with me ap- after that. And, and it, so in a way, you know, it was both training to read other people's bodies because, you know, there were times where I would, you know, come down the street and there were people that were killers, you know, mm-hmm. and I had to learn how to almost become invisible at times so that I wouldn't. They wouldn't feel like I was standing up to them. And then there were other times where I had to energetically hold power and almost like a raw spontaneity, like, you know, don't mess with this guy because I don't know what he's going to do kind of energy. Um, So it was in a way I had to almost act as a survival mechanism because people were getting killed all the time around me.
3: Yeah,
1: Um, and you have to seem
2: Yeah. I had to learn how to stay in my body one way or the other as to survive. And so in a way, it's like ultimate actor training.
1: Talk about Ron's spontaneity, you all think I'm crazy, but I was just, you're talking about, and I'm thinking about these compressed energetic roles and and your range, uh, as I've seen across different um, performances, and I was just, uh, you know this film, film, No Way to Treat a Lady, with Rod Steiger? No. You don't know? No. Oh, I think you would be great in a remake of that. Um, but I'm this is just oh, me just throwing. I'm
2: gonna write that down. <laughs> okay. No way to treat a lady. Yeah.
1: I watch that. Yeah, I mean don't like think I'm. Um, it's a great pro but it'd be great for showing a range uh your range, as I've seen, um because it's a. it's a. he he plays a range of roles. He's kind of a psychopath, but he's he, he gets to show I mean it's for an actor it's great, because you can have menace and you can have, you know you know, gentleness or you know, it's it's just great because you'd have those uh, having to perform roles that are four minutes, and, and they're all different. Um wow. So yeah, I, I think it's. I it, thought that was um, you know a qu- quite a strong performance, and it's you know it's like it was in the '70s was done, so I think it could be remade. But I'd like to also talk about um, some of your forthcoming roles. I mean, as much as you can talk about them. Um, because, sure. uh, you were talking about, I don't know how to pronounce her name, Nicole Holof, center Senator, I don't know how to pronounce yes. her name. Yes. Um, and I guess you're doing Motherless Brooklyn, Mrs. Fletcher. Um, uh, I was actually right. ju- just recently in touch with Tom Parada, but he says, Hey, I'm in the middle of adapting this. Can you get back to me? So there's a lot of like convergence right. and different things, but could you talk about some of those roles and what, um, Absolutely. yeah.
2: Um well what i uh what i uh, first talk about like what i can talk about the least yes um which is um i just shot um joker
1: oh Jesus, yes this,
2: with Joaquin Phoenix mm. and um i mean it's not it's a DC movie but it's not at all like a DC movie it's just it's it has the vibe of uh, New York in the 1980s and Robert De Niro is in it and it has very much of a feel of Taxi Driver and King of Comedy Wow! and it's one of the best scripts I've ever read it's not a superhero movie at all it's the, it's an origin movie of this character of, that Joaquin plays of this guy that evolves into being the Joker and so that was um that was an amazing experience I can't really talk much more about it but it was um, you know I feel like he's he's an actor that just creates from his impulses and from his body Mm -hmm. and um, so I guess that's all I can say about that I'm I'm looking forward
1: to that I I guess that's out next year is it?
2: Uh, uh, yeah next year yeah
1: and so and some um, of those others, then,
2: yeah. Okay. So then um, Mrs. Fletcher, which is um, Tom Parada's uh, new show, um, and Nicole um Hollis Center. I always I, I have tr- I'm, i I have trouble with her name too, but I believe it's hollis Center. Um, she um, she's directing the pilot and it's I mean, I just love this character that I'm playing in it. I play a guy who, in a sense, uh, completely missed like the Me Too movement <laughs> or the or an awareness of it. And he he's not he's not an asshole, but he doesn't get um, he doesn't get like what how men should relate to women and so it's almost like he's been in like a time warp and it's and it's not like it's disrespectful but it's uh it's just not enlightened (laughs) yes um, i live in france
1: i encounter them on a daily basis
2: (laughs) right right (laughs) Um, and it's out of like, it's, yeah, it's old school. It's out of like admiration of feminine energy and, and and you know and a and a and a love of women, but it's not. Um, but it's not evolved. <laughs> um, it's not disrespectful. It's not like you know anything. Uh, uh, how do I phrase this?
3: It's not like,
2: he's not an asshole, and he's not, um, he doesn't do anything harmful, but it's just how he sees women at, you know, he sees them as his bodies, you know, and he doesn't see the whole picture, um, and it's very, very delicate. Um, it's a very delicate place to play, especially Mm -hmm. in this time that we're in, um, and really, What's amazing about the series is that it really explores. I mean, I, I haven't, I haven't, you know, I've, I've only read the pilot and talked with Tom about where it's going, but it, it, it really is about where we are, uh, at least in this country, in terms of sexuality, like, and the confusion and what, what is okay, what's not okay, and, and it also gets into. You know how porn plays such a role in many people's lives, and just how you know having um, sexual experiences with while you're on the computer by yourself, you know the impact of that on culture and behavior and relating. And so it's just it's really rich. Uh, you know, I feel like the balance of my character is, um, you know, it's just a little bit dangerous um, in terms of what's. To, it's a little bit of a dangerous area to, to explore in the time that we're in. But that—that's, that's, and I don't mean da- I mean dangerous creatively. Like yeah. You, you know, it's 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 really a. Um, It's like, I think men and women, you know, things are changing right now and, you know, and, and women are, are moving into power and, 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 you know, and I think men and masculinity doesn't quite, you know, I don't think men have quite figured out how to, how do we honor like that women should be in power now because men have fucked everything up. Um, but at the same time, like how does how do we balance our masculinity and our masculine you know with masculine in us naturally uh, and be and honor women? And I think that's kind of a struggle that men are trying to figure out and I think a lot of men have become feminized and kind of many men are in a sense accessing their feminine energy because out of wanting to be evolved and I think a lot of women are embracing their masculine energy and both of us, you know, everybody has both in them Um, but um, so I'm just, I think it's a really interesting territory to play around with creatively. So I'm I'm just really excited to see where the show is gonna go and to be a part of it.
1: Yeah, well, um, it no, then, yes, go ahead. Go ahead. No, we were going I mean, you go you were talking about motherless Brooklyn. Sorry, I'm just um interested yeah. in these projects.
2: Yeah, yeah. So um I've done a couple movies with Edward Norton mm-hmm. um, and he's he's um he's a friend and Somebody I respect uh, a lot, and so he he wrote this movie. It's an adaptation of um a book by the same name yeah, by Jonathan um, Lethem. And yeah, but yep. And it's uh it's set in the nineteen fifties in New York, and it's got you know Edward Norton's in it, Willem Dafoe, Alec Baldwin. Um, I mean, it's just it's an amazing everybody in it. It's it's an amazing uh, amazing cast. Bruce Willis, um, and so I you know got to work with all those guys uh, in it. And it's a very um, it's set in the 1950s, but it's you know one of the central characters is a real estate developer that gains lots of power, and it's based. It's ripping on some true, um, some true stories, um, and and I play a guy that is. It's interesting because he is very quiet, um, but is very. In, he's he it's almost like energetically he's controlling things. He's, con- he's controlling and has his fingers in, like, this political uh, situation uh, of the movie, and it's, like, a very... Um, it's somebody who's... You know, it was a very... Play- it's very much about playing with energy because he's... It's like he's in everybody's business, but it's, like... But he's, like, walking around. But he he also the character is almost acting like, hey, I'm not doing anything. But he's deeply integrated and mysterious um, and uh, and very involved in some corrupt stuff. And um, But, you know, on the surface, is like, you know, I'm just here with us. <laughs> so it's really, uh, really fun to play with. You know that kind of an energetic presence.
1: Yeah, it's and uh, that sounds fascinating too. And 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 knowing the text Motherless Brooklyn, so it's uh, we'll be looking forward to that. I guess that's next year as well. It'll be coming out.
2: Yeah, right. yeah. I mean, it feels like. It's, I mean, even both Joker and Motherless Brooklyn, Brooklyn, they just feel like they'll be Oscar contenders. Like if they're that kind of movie. They're mm-hmm. like they're just big um you know they're big rich stories
1: it's it's been so fascinating talking with you and i just would like um we've talked about um the committed impulse and i'm just wondering uh do you have because this is a uh, the creative process is like an educational initiative and i was wondering as you've been teaching i think you've been doing that for 20 years you've been teaching actors and then you say different you know artists entrepreneurs um, and as you've oh, no doubt like studied um, you've studied acting but you've studied all other you know educational systems and I'm just wondering how do you think if there were just you know a few things that we could do to uh, incorporate creativity in our existing education models you know what would some of those things be what, what you know what are things that you've seen that work work for you or work in, in other countries and, and and how and how would you do that
2: Well, I think a starting place, um, is, um, what I call like the four access points, um, to being present. Um, and I, I, there's a free audio on the committed impulse website where I break this down, but I think one of the key things is like these four access points are one is to connect to the actual information that's in your body like meaning not, not a analysis of it but what is the actual experience in your body in this moment like where is their movement where is their emotion where is their contraction where is their expansion um, and to, so one key thing is connecting to that another key thing is to connect to your immediate environment and by that, I mean I mean almost, in a sense, see what's around you the way a baby would see it or the way an animal would see it. And by that, I mean to, to see the texture, the lightness, the darkness, where there's space in what's around you. Because our mind wants to categorize every experience so that we don't stay present. But if you actually see the door that's in front of you in this moment and the light that's on the door and the and, and see it like how a baby would see it, like it's just shaped. And that is another key element to pull you out of your mind and, and into your body, which is where the creativity is. And the other two components of this kind of core um, – four tools to get present is to as soon as you're aware that you've left your body, meaning like you've started, you might be in a conversation with someone and your mind is off, you know, shopping in Bloomingdale's or having a drama or or you'll be in your head going, fantasizing about the future or regretting the past or the past was better or whatever Mm -hmm. it may be that we have to know our mind does everything it can to keep us out of this moment and it's a it's a survival strategy that no longer serves humanity. At one point it served us kind of to keep us from leaving the caves because anything could happen out there. But we still have this residue in our genetic history to be always worried, always contemplating what could go wrong or what is wrong or what is right. And so to become aware when we've gone into a, a thought loop and there typically these thought loops are always the same. and as soon as you're aware that you've left what's immediate, and I do this in my classes, I have people say I'm back
3: mm-hmm.
2: and just to bring yourself back to this moment bring yourself back to what you feel in your body and to actually see what's in front of you. Not to just categorize it so that you don't see anything, but to actually see. And then the fourth piece is just to consciously breathe to feel more and to see more. And by just integrating these four access points, it opens the creative channel. It opens something much deeper, much more pure, much more spontaneous than what we can come up with in our mind, and it will also generate inspirational ideas uh, in a way that is working from your physiology as opposed to just spinning inside your uh, your thoughts, and and that in a sense goes back to you know what you were saying about Einstein and my dad would do this too like he would just walk every morning and he would say like on that somewhere in that walk he would he would walk to Central Park and somewhere in that walk like he would something would click and he would figure it would pop just pop out of nowhere like this equation that he was working on yeah. and we need to you know these access points It also keeps you out of a mental drama it's it um you know and uh, an area that i'm really interested in exploring and, and am getting more and more into is just in terms of health and you mentioned this you know earlier a little bit that by staying present and out of and staying connected to the actual sensations in your body as opposed to suppressing them is the ultimate anti-aging, the ultimate health cleanse. Because if there are sensations that we don't, we have a low tolerance for, when they occur, what we do is we suppress those sensations into a part of our body. And those areas become, in a sense, lock boxes. And the blood, you know, the blood doesn't flow as well. And that starts to create pain, tension, um, and can lead to illness. Um, And by just opening up to whatever is happening without analyzing it, but just letting yourself feel it, and it's like the whole physical system becomes operates how it wants to operate. And if we can get out of this pattern of trying to feel some ideal set of sensations and just uh, trust that are, you know we've' we're these beings that have these bodies that feel stuff and that none of it's bad. Yes. and we're we're designed this way. It just opens up the energetic patterns in the body and is just incredibly healing.
3: Yeah.
1: Well, I think that that's so important as You say for health, for the mental health, for the physical health. And it's just a, a lovely yeah. image just to imagine ourselves like, I don't want to say as children, because we want to be have all our wisdom and everything. But, you know, it's nothing more joyful than just to watch, a, you know, a, a young, you know, a baby who's just learned how to walk or just learned how to like yeah. dance. And they're like dancing, you know, and they're just like, look at my feet look at my hands they're so free and it's just like yes. look at the wonder of this and i think that it's it's not about not knowing it's just i feel that the instinctive mind often knows so much more than our our conscious mind which is often slower cuz we can if you because you can pinpoint it you can pinpoint the conscious mind but yes. the instinctive mind is like a flash it's so it's smarter really um yes, so it is. But well, you've, you've yeah, yes. you said, yes. Go ahead. No, you've, I just, no, you you're okay. saying something,
3: yeah.
2: <laughs> I, all I was going to say is that one thing that I, you know, that I encourage people in my classes mm-hmm. is, you know, like from an early age, like in grammar school, like one of the worst responses you can have to a teacher is, I don't know. Like if a teacher yeah. says, you know, when did this happen in history? And you go, I don't know. Like, that's the worst response. And I think we as kids are terrified of I don't know. However, if you can have, as an adult, have the the bravery, in a mm-hmm. sense, to, to actively be in I don't know, like to just be like, I don't know. And, you know, if I say anything to myself when I'm about to walk into the scene, it's, I don't know what's going to happen. And for us to hang out with that place of I don't know, it just opens this amazing creative place. Because then it's, if we approach things with I know this, Mm -hmm. like you've already eliminated so much spontaneity. Mm -hmm. But if you can be in like, And we, you know, as humans, like, we don't know. We don't know what's going to happen. We don't know why we're here. We don't know, you know.
1: Yeah, we're kind of terrified, so we pretend, you know.
3: Yeah. Yeah,
2: But if we can just honor that we don't know, um, you know, we don't know what we don't know. And just, like, to live in that, it just, it calms the nervous system and it makes things playful.
1: Yeah, and also it makes for really fascinating art, because if the actor doesn't know, or if yeah. the writer doesn't even know, it's like discovering, it's like, it's surprising. I'm, you know, yeah. if, I, if I can predict what's going to happen, you know, that's, <laughs> I might as well, you know, I might as well go home and imagine it. So, yeah. Well, anyway, right. that's what I find well, yeah, with your performances.
2: Oh, thank you. That's, yeah, that's what I'm, that's what I've been experimenting with. Yeah. So I, I appreciate that.
1: No, it's it's really yeah, great.
2: Have, and we have to we have to recognize that there's a part of our mind that wants everything to be the same and yeah. and everything to be known because it calms that little part of us. But mm-hmm. so often that's the part that we get caught up in and we miss this whole other spectrum of aliveness.
1: Right. Well, that's what why why it's as you said it's important for anti-aging because when we feel we know everything, we feel that we have nothing else to do, and we kind of shut down. But what, as long as we feel that things yet to discover, and we still have this big sense of curiosity or the childlike wonder and things, then there's there's many years ahead of us. So, um, yeah. but yeah, I love you, that. It was, it was great talking to you, and I'll be doing um, an, an artwork to accompany the interview and sharing it in the traveling exhibition. Thank you so much, Josh Pice, for adding your insights uh, to the creative process. It's been a pleasure.
2: Pleasure is mine as well.
0: This interview was conducted by Mia Funk with the participation of collaborating universities and students associate interviews producer on this podcast was emma ryan digital media coordinator is Yu young lee wintertime was composed by nicholas andolas and performed by the athenian trio